As you can see by the screen, we have uh, two readings this morning, one from the Old Testament and one from the New. You'll find uh, Bibles in the, uh, in the back of the seat in front of you if you wish to follow on. And our first reading is from Isaiah 53, which you will find on page 735. Who has be- Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should deceive, desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Now we go across to um, Corinthians, Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 8, which you'll find on page 1155 of your church Bibles. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Uh, just to clarify uh, my role in that Hillsong song about the Apostles' Creed, uh, like all I did is I tweeted just into the what, whatever tweets go into. Um, could those amazing Hillsong songwriters do world Christianity a favor by turning the Apostles' Creed into, uh, into a song? And I didn't even know I knew anyone at Hillsong, and they tweeted back, okay, we'll give it a go. Next, I heard they invited me uh, to a breakfast to hear the demo of the song, and it was awesome. And uh, the next I heard, it had sold a million copies, and uh, went to number one in Indonesia, and... 
how I wish all my crazy ideas, you know, turned out that well. Eleven years ago, one of the world's most famous and influential atheists published an oops, admitted that he was probably wrong to have argued for 40 years that there was no God. It might not have made the evening news, but it caused a stir in academic circles because this was Anthony Flew, professor of philosophy at the University of Reading in the UK and one of the leading advocates for atheism in the academic world. This was the author of major textbooks on atheism that are still used in universities today. One's called God and Philosophy, the other's called uh, The Presumption of Atheism. And he published a book saying, yeah, maybe I wasn't exactly right. There is a God, is the title of the book, uh, subtitled, How the World's Most Notorious Atheist Changed His Mind. I bet the publisher gave the subtitle. I can imagine him bristling at it. Christians were jubilant. Yay, they claimed a convert. Atheist circles said the poor guy has gone senile, and that's the only explanation for his uh, change of belief. But neither of those was true. He hadn't become a Christian, and he certainly didn't become senile. I know people that uh, had conversations with him at this same uh, time. He had just joined the common sense ranks of those who looked at our rationally ordered material universe and said it is most logical to suggest there is an eternal mind behind the universe. Uh, in his own nerdy words, there is a self-existent, immutable, immaterial, omnipotent and omniscient being. Aren't philosophers just a joy at dinner parties? which sounds very philosophical, but it's pretty much what we saw last week in the opening line of the Apostles' Creed, that universal statement of Christian belief that all brands of Christianity sign off on. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And as I said last week, there are at least two very practical implications of believing that the creation comes from a creator. One is that it means the physical world and our own lives are not random accidents of time and space, but gifts of the creator, brimming with significance. And it also means that mistreating these gifts would be an offense to the giver. You may remember, if you were here, that I borrowed Jesus' famous picture of what makes someone a sinner. He didn't talk about the vices that naughty people get up to. He told a story about a son, a prodigal son, who asked the father for all the inheritance now and then took off to a foreign land and spent it on himself. This is Jesus trying to explain what really is the fundamental sin the fundamental offense. It's relishing all the created stuff and ignoring the Creator. It's loving the gifts and not loving the giver. Well, that was last week. 
And all of it raises a question. It's a question, actually, that Professor Anthony Flew asked, and we don't know how he answered it. It's a question that isn't actually academic and philosophical. It's one that can actually change your life. There it is. How could we know what the Creator is really like? Sure, you can establish the existence of an architect by looking at a beautifully built building. You can establish the existence of a director when you watch a beautifully shot film. But how could you know what the architect or the director was really like? Unless the architect knocked on your door one day and invited herself in for a cup of tea. Or the director decided to place himself in a scene in the film, as Martin Scorsese likes to do. How could you know what the Creator is really like unless God stepped out of eternity into history? You can see where I'm going. This is why the Apostles' Creed, all Christians of all brands, speak about the centrality of Jesus Christ. In those words that we heard a moment ago, I believe in God the Father, yes, that's uh, last week's business, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, and so on. Now, what's the first thing you notice when you compare this second stanza with the first one we looked at last week? It's like five times longer, right? Five times longer. This Statement of the Christian faith is mainly about Jesus Christ. In fact, to get nerdy for a second, of the 83 words in the original language of the Apostles' Creed, 56 of them are about Jesus. Two-thirds of the Apostles' Creed are about Jesus. Christianity connects God and Jesus in a remarkable way. In fact, grammatically speaking, although these are two stanzas, the I believe in God stuff and the Jesus stuff, they're two stanzas, it's one sentence. Hanging off one verb, I believe. I believe in God the Creator and in Jesus Christ, etc. I put it to you that this is something that you may be used to if you've sort of grown up in Christian culture, but our Muslim neighbors would not risk saying something like that. Your Muslim friends would not say, I believe in Allah and Muhammad. No way. Not in the same breath, in the same way. Our Jewish friends uh, would not say, I believe in Yahweh and Moses. But Christianity takes this enormous risk. In the same breath, in the same act of believing, it says, I believe in God and Jesus. This is because... In Jesus, we learn not only that God exists, which you can discover by pure logic, actually, but in fact, we discover 
what God is like, which I don't think logic can bring you to. I'm making such a thing of this because, you know, I have friends uh, who are fine with the idea of a nebulous God, you know, the mind behind the universe, so long as you don't begin that creepy stuff about Jesus and God. That's where they start to freak out a little bit. And I also have friends who are fine with Jesus the man. Yeah, great man, great ethical stand. So long as you don't get all weird and connect Jesus to God. But I guess I just want to confess that Christianity connects God and Jesus in this most remarkable way. Christ is central. And part of the reason he is central is also here in the creed. It's because in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we, creatures, can discover amnesty with God. Amnesty. From the Greek word amnesia, which means amnesia, forgetting. God forgiving and forgetting. That comes through Jesus. Uh, look at what the creed makes the center of the center. If the Jesus stanza is the center, look at the center of the center. Suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead and buried, descended to the dead. The third day he rose again from the dead. Three days are the center. His arrest, trial, execution, burial, and resurrection. Three days. Consider this. Um, the creation of the universe gets ten words in the creed. Three days of Jesus' death and resurrection gets twenty words in the creed. The creed is just trying to do what the Bible itself does lay enormous emphasis on Jesus' death and resurrection for our amnesty. Uh, the New Testament creed just brought to us says precisely this. By the way, this passage excites historians no end because we can date the statement that follows the words first importance to within five years of the life of Jesus. This is about as close as you can ever get in antiquity. For what I received... I passed on to you as of first importance, the Apostle Paul says, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Kephas and then to the Twelve. What is first importance in Christianity? Jesus' death and resurrection for our amnesty, for our forgiveness with God. Actually, this little statement is just doing exactly what the four Gospels in the New Testament do. The Gospels are biographies. And it should tell us something, actually, that the first four books of Christian Scripture, of the New Testament, are biographies. That's weird. If you're used to the New Testament, you're sort of used to going Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Of course, it starts with biographies. But look at every other form of Scripture, and I'm telling you, starting with biographies is just weird. And these four biographies, if you average out their content, Jesus lived, you know, over 30 years. If you average out the content, 16% of the Gospels deals with just three days. 
30-something years across the whole thing, and then it slows down to this incredible focused pace to give chapters on simply the arrest, trial, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. Why? Because this is where we discover amnesty. Now, I'm not uh, proposing that we do theology by numbers, you know, 16%, uh, especially someone who's not really gifted at mathematics. But in this case, it is bearing out something that Christianity has always said, that the Apostles' Creed has always said, the most important thing to know about Jesus isn't his wonderful teaching, isn't even the kind of miracles that he performed, as beautiful as they are. The most important thing to know about Jesus is that he died and rose again for our amnesty, for our forgiveness. He took into himself the penalty we deserve. The Old Testament reading, written centuries before Christ, said as a prophecy, The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. That's exactly why Jesus died. You know, this parable of the prodigal son that I've mentioned several times offers not only a perfect picture of the sinner as someone who wants all of the created stuff but not the creator. Actually, the main point of the parable is that it's a perfect picture of amnesty because this son comes to his senses How's that for a description of becoming a Christian? Coming to your senses, Jesus said. And returns to the Father, unaware what the Father's reaction will be. And Jesus is describing the Father, who obviously represents God in the storytelling. And we're told that this Father, while the boy was still a long way off, his Father saw him, was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his Son, he threw his arms around him and kissed him. That is amnesty. That is God, the Creator, welcoming back the prodigals. And I find myself wondering, when Jesus first told this parable, and no doubt delighted people in the audience that God, the Creator, would be like that, I wonder if He, behind those beautiful, joyful, sad eyes of His, knew that this could only be a reality because he would die within 18 months. So that the parable can become real in our lives. This is central. This is the raw nerve of Christianity. And can I say something that may be a little bit controversial? Whatever you love and hate or love or hate, about the Christian faith, please make sure you love or hate this. Because there are all sorts of silly reasons to hate Christianity or to love Christianity that aren't really Christianity. Make sure you love or hate Christianity because of this thing, the amnesty with God that Jesus' death and resurrection brings. You know, last year, Jenny Leon, an MP uh, for the Greens, In the New South Wales uh, Parliament railed against Scripture in schools. Um, You know, I'm I'm quite fond of Scripture in schools, so she certainly had my attention. 
her gripe was what's called the good news beads uh, lesson. This is where the kiddies make a little bracelet with different coloured beads to describe central points of Christianity. Green is for creation, black is for sin, the wrong that we do, uh, red is of course for Jesus' blood, the death and resurrection, white is for God's forgiveness, blue is for the coming of the Holy Spirit, and gold is for the kingdom come, or heaven. Basically, these beads are the Apostles' Creed. It's fantastic. But Jenny Leong got up and basically said, waving the lesson, can you believe what our kids are being taught? And her great problem was the black and the red beads. Our kiddies are being told that they're in the wrong with God. How dangerous is that? Our kids are being told that someone had to die, shed their blood for their forgiveness. This is dangerous. This is not 21st century. If you want to criticize something in our culture today, you, you say it's old. Get with the times. Not this horrible stuff. Now, I listened to the speech and my first instinct, I've got to tell you, I'm not proud of it, was annoyance and disappointment. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought, you know, good on Jenny Leon. Good on her. Because some people mock Christianity for silly reasons. For reasons that don't really attach to the Christian faith. At least she had the common sense, the insight and the guts to go after what is central to the Christian faith. That what is on offer is amnesty with the Creator through Jesus' death and resurrection. The centrality of Christ. The amnesty he achieved. And finally, the history that grounds it all. You'll notice that the center of the Christian faith is not a set of rules, ethical rules. You know, there are no rules in the Apostles' Creed. No moral statements at all, actually. Weird. Nor is it really philosophical, though that first line comes close to being philosophical. The Apostles' Creed is mainly a statement of a series of events in time and place that we can actually date and locate in real flesh and blood history. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried. He descended to the dead the third day he rose again from the dead. And notice, right in the middle of the creed is a very strange reminder of the historical nature of Christianity. Amidst these lofty themes of Jesus connected with God, of the uh, way he brings amnesty to the world, right in the middle of that, there's this weird mention of a local, datable Roman governor. Do you see that? Suffered under Pontius Pilate. What? In the middle of the universal statement of Christian belief, we are, we are told to name out loud a Roman prefect, pagan Roman prefect. And, incidentally, it's one we can pinpoint exactly, because fortunately, Pontius Pilate left us a nice monument to himself on the coast of Israel in a place called Caesarea. 
This monument was uncovered in the mid-60s, um, and uh, you can go and visit it. It's in a beautiful museum in Jerusalem to this day. He declares himself the prefect of Judea, and here's the thing. We can therefore date him absolutely precisely to 26 and 36. He was 10 years the governor of Judea. What is a figure of secular history doing in our key statement of belief? It's reminding us Christianity is anchored in this world. This isn't Middle Earth, right? The land of the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. This is the history of the Middle East, time and place. Christianity, therefore, is not based on a lone spiritual insight nor on a mystical story from the dawn of time that you can't test, nor on someone's dream, nor even on a divine dictation in a holy book that you're not allowed to question. No, Christianity is based on a series of events in real Roman history. Let me try and illustrate the difference this makes. Imagine I came here uh, this morning, not with the sermon that I've prepared, but with a very different sermon, where actually I was here to tell you that uh, last night my great-great-grandmother appeared to me in a dream with the truth about the spiritual realm. Blow this Christianity stuff, I now have the truth. It's really simple. There are just a few dietary things you need to follow, a couple of set prayers and mantras, few things you need to believe, and you will be elevated to supreme consciousness. Now, if I had made that claim here this morning, no matter how beautifully I'd made the claim, no matter how much it sort of resonated with you psychologically, there is no way for you to test either that I really had the dream or that the content of the dream is real. It's totally otherworldly. But what if I came here this morning with a very different form of that same claim? What if I said, no, no, scrap the dream. Last Thursday night, right here in the Corso, my great-great-grandmother appeared in a giant apparition that stopped the revelers in their tracks, and for 15 minutes, she revealed the truth to the people of Manly, and I've come now to reveal it to you. Now, see how different those claims are. One is totally unverifiable. Totally, you've got to take it by faith. There's nothing to locate it in this world. You may find it emotionally satisfying, but in no way can you test it objectively. The second one is very different. Yes, it's weird, but if I'm saying last Thursday night in the Corso, something stopped the tra- you can instantly do a few little tests. You can watch the news to see if there had been anything. Uh, you can interview eyewitnesses. You can see if police reports make a mention of it. You can see if incidental details of my story match the actual realities of Thursday night on the Corso. You might not be able to prove the whole thing, but we are now in the realm of a verifiable claim. And my point is, Christianity falls into this category, unlike the normal religious category. Christianity is not mere revelation in spiritual time about spiritual themes. It's a series of events recorded by a multiplicity of witnesses in dateable time. 
I'm not saying we can verify everything, but we can verify enough to say we are not dealing with Middle Earth, but the Middle East. And actually, reflection on this point led Professor Anthony Flew to at least ask the question in his book, could Christianity be true? He insisted he hadn't become a Christian. It's really clear. Don't, don't mishear me that he you know, became a secret Christian or anything. That's not what I'm saying. But he did, the, he did the weirdest thing. After outlining his philosophical argument for God's existence now, the things that changed his mind, he then asked one of the leading British historians, N.T. Wright, to, to write an appendix on the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. Think about that. This former atheist professor of philosophy says, um, you, you're, you're a famous New Testament historian, could you come and write out the evidence for me? Why did he do it? He admits that he, he didn't believe it, but he said, if there is anything in world religions that could be, an X marks the spot, a tangible demonstration of God's character and plans for the world, it is the resurrection of Jesus. He introduced the appendix by saying, if you're wanting omnipotence to set up a religion, it seems to me that this is the one to beat. <laughs> it's a cute, British, understated way of saying, maybe, maybe. Uh, sadly, Flew died a few years ago. And I really don't know where his thoughts took him. But one thing I do know, the Apostles' Creed confronts us all with the centrality of Jesus Christ, the amnesty He achieved for us, and the history that grounds it all. Max Licardo, a beautiful author, tells a story in one of his books, true story, that I want to pinch and turn in a different direction. He said he knew of a family outside of Rio whose daughter, Christina, had always grown up saying one day she wants to go to Rio and experience the bright lights and the party atmosphere of that town. And her mother had always said to her, please don't go to Rio by yourself as a teenager. The only work you'll ever find is the most demeaning kind of work. So when a few years later her mum woke up and Christina had packed her bags and was missing, her mum knew exactly what Christina must have attempted. So her mum hopped on a bus into Rio and spent the next few days apparently searching the city for her daughter with no luck. And she had a great idea. She went into those, you know those tourist photo booths that you have around the place? She went into one of these and took lots and lots of photos of herself and then walked around the sleazy joints of Rio and stuck this photo of herself all over the place, hoping that maybe one day Christina would see her photo and think about returning. 
It was weeks later. Christina had, in fact, turned to a most demeaning way of making ends meet, partly because she just had no idea if she could go back home. And she was walking down the stairwell of one of these sleazy places and noticed a photo of her mum on the wall. Can you imagine the feeling? And she quickly grabbed it and noticed a message on the back that simply said, whatever you have done, whatever you have become, please just come home. And she did. Because in that moment, she had clarity about what the home was like. And I tell you that because God has left a photo of himself in the world. Jesus Christ. Or if I can say, the architect has knocked on the door. The director has stepped into the film. The creator has stepped out of eternity into history. And a similar message is attached. Whatever you've done, whatever you've become, please just come home. Amnesty. Forgiveness. Clarity. Love. The home of our soul. Will you come home? Let me close in a prayer that I'm sure could be true of a long-term Christian, but I especially hope what I'm about to pray, slowly, sentence by sentence, might be especially for those who feel they've kept their distance from the Creator, that they have offended the Almighty, that they want to come home to his love. Let's pray. Dear God, I acknowledge that you are the creator of all things. You have given me life and breath and everything else. but I haven't treated you as you deserve. I've been distracted. I have loved the gifts more than you, the giver. I have wandered a long way. But thank you for Jesus Christ, for His life, death, and resurrection for me. Because of Him, please will you forgive me now. I want to come home.
in Jesus' name. Amen.